You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. Our sermon text today is Genesis 4, verses 17 through chapter 6, verse 8. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness, after his image, and named him Seth. The days of Adam, after he fathered Seth, were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch. 800 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. 
When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. All right, you can have a seat. All right, we've got a fun text in front of us today. This will be great. So if you've got a Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 5. And uh, it'll be helpful if you have the text open in front of you because we are going to ping pong a little bit through our selected text here. And one of the, when you have the conviction that every word of Scripture is God's word and you preach sequentially through passages of the Bible, you come across passages like long genealogies that maybe you would be tempted to skip. But I think, I think as we make our way through this, you'll see that there is something quite profound for us to learn about God and the world, and there's a reason that God saw to preserve this, to, to uh, put it in his word, that we might read it and learn from it today. So uh, today's message is called a global pandemic of evil, and that phrase global pandemic kind of strikes us because uh, we've heard that phrase roughly a million times in the last year, year and a half. And what's amazing when you think about a pandemic is that it starts so small. Um, you think of just a couple bites of a bat, can totally transform the world in a year and a half, whether that's um, entirely because of the disease or the effects of, you know, all of these different things. There's no doubting that something that started so small um, can have such a worldwide global impact. Likewise, what we've seen in our study through Genesis is that one bite of one piece of fruit in Genesis 3 is now going to lead, as we've seen, to a global pandemic of evil to the point that God himself will take some drastic action. Um, We've been working our way through the book of Genesis. We've been calling it the beginning series because we want to get under our feet uh, who the Bible says God is and who God created us to be and why the world is the way it is. And so we want to get a good ontology. Ontology just means the the essence, the, the, the original, the substance, the beginning point, what is really most true about the world, about us, about God. And we do that by, by going to Genesis and seeing right out of the gate who is God, what is he created, and how are things the way they are, and how is God going to redeem them. And uh, so we saw in Genesis chapter 1 an epically awesome God creating a masterpiece universe, 
completely separate from himself, completely dependent upon him, though he not dependent on it at all. And he graciously and brilliantly designed a world and placed human beings in it that would care for it and represent him in it, to image him, to enjoy him, to worship him, to enjoy God in his world, to display the greatness of God by imaging him well, and to share the goodness of God in the world around us. That's part of why we have these three things. Is this is what God has designed humanity to be from the very outset, is to enjoy him, enjoy his glory, and to display it by imaging him well, and then to share and spread that all around the world. That is what we were made for. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see that a small prohibition from God becomes a great temptation through the evil one, and one bite of one forbidden piece of fruit becomes a global pandemic of evil, corrupts absolutely everything in God's good world. Now, there's much that's good, and there's much that's beautiful in the world, but there's also much that has been distorted and broken, and you feel that. You can think of things, you can feel things even now that are broken because of this pandemic of sin that infects every single human being. In Genesis 3, God confronts and curses according to the agreement he made with them in chapter 2, and give, but gives them a glimmer of promise that one day there will be one born of woman who will crush the head of the serpent, who will reverse the curse, who will, who will undo the effects of sin and will save those who trust in him. And so there's this glimmer of promise that an offspring of Eve is going to be the rescuer, is going to be the undoer of everything that's gone wrong. And so in chapter 4, we saw last week, Eve gives, gives birth to two sons, Cain and Abel, and you can anticipate, you can feel the anticipation that she has that God should have put uh, Adam and Eve to death maybe right on the spot, but he gives them grace and he lets them continue to be fruitful and multiply and carry out his... Um, his good pleasure to them. And so when she gives birth to these sons, you see these, this joy at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1 is like, maybe this is the man-child. This is, maybe this is the one who will reverse the curse, who will crush the head of the serpent, who will undo what's evil. And what we find is that Adam, Abel and Cain offer a worship to God. Cain's is accepted, Abel's is not. And Cain, instead of crushing the head of the serpent, becomes like the serpent and crushes the head of his brother. And then we're left with this nasty situation where one bite of fruit turned into brother murdering brother in just one generation. And we're going to see here how it just continues to spread from there. As awful as that might be of having one of your children kill the other one of your children because he's good, (laughs) because he's righteous, because he loves God, he gets murdered by his brother. To think that it's going to get worse from there is just is kind of terrifying. And so this global pandemic of evil is right here. I don't know if you've ever had computer problems. Anybody have computer problems? I seem to have more than my fair share of computer problems. And you've got a couple different ways that you can resolve it, right? You're, something's freezing up, not working right on your computer. Maybe you've got a virus. Maybe it's old. And so you've got one is that you can do a restart, right? You call tech support. And what do they say? Well, have you turned it off and turned it back on, right? There's that restart. That's one way to kind of, on a, on a low level, sort of, remedy what's been stuck, what's been broken. But then if you've got something much more serious, then you need a total reformat. And what we're going to see is we're going to see both of those things. As God sees this pandemic of evil going everywhere, we're going to see a toledote reset and then eventually a total reformat. Okay, so I want you to think of that idea of a virus running loose in a computer and in God, what he's going to do is he's going to do a Toledot restart. Toledot is the Hebrew word for generations. So the generations start 
Um, Let's look at chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. That's where we're going to see the Toledot restart. The the phrase, these are the generations of. Toledot um, happens 10 times in the book of Genesis and serves essentially as the chapters of Genesis. So the chapters and verses you have in your Bible were added later. It would be much better to read Genesis thinking through the sections in terms of the Toledot, the generations of. And so the first one we see is in chapter 2, verse 4, where this phrase starts, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So that's the chapter heading for this is this chapter of the book. This is the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And that's going to go until we get to the end of chapter 4. And then at the beginning of chapter 5, we see a reset. It says this, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and blessed them and named them man where they were created, which goes back to Genesis 1. So we've got a restart here, is that what was started in Genesis 1 has gone off track, and now in Genesis 5, it's almost like we're coming back and we're restarting. Adam and Eve were made in God's image, male and female, he created them, and now we're going to have kind of a restart to this thing. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So again, this pulls us back to chapter 1, back past Cain and Abel, and we're going to take kind of a different line. The the line of promise is going to go a different direction because the Cain and Abel line has kind of hit a dead end. So why the reset? Go back to chapter 4, verses 17 through 24, and let's trace the line of Seth. Because remember, Abel's dead. So if the promise of God that the seed of the woman is going to crush the serpent, it's got to come through Cain at this point, because these are the only two sons that we know of. And so let's see where the evil of Cain, where the, um, the disposition of Cain, let's see how that works out in his children, his grandchildren, great-grandchildren down the line. So um, chapter 4, verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and he conceived, she conceived, and bore Enoch, And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Meshuel, and Methushuel fathered Lamech. And Lamech had two wives, and so we're landing in the seventh generation from Adam. You'll see this in biblical genealogies. They often come in multiples of seven or ten. So there's this rhythm to the biblical genealogies that's communicating something. And so let's go ahead and fast forward from Cain, the brother killer. Let's let's just skip right down to the seventh generation and take the temperature. Let's just kind of see where this line is headed. And so here we are with Lamech. Um, So Lamech, uh, Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also born, bore Tubalcane. He was a forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Okay, so this is the trajectory of this particular line of Cain. We get to the seventh generation, and we see that this Lamech dude is uh, 
a serious problem. He is even worse than his father, 77 times worse than his father Cain in many ways. So seven generations through the line of Cain, we get an opening description of Cain. Remember, Cain was banished by God to be a wanderer. And, and here's some things that we notice in this particular genealogy. Cain defies God's order to be a wanderer by building a city. So now we have the beginning of urbanization as a rebellion against God. He's not wandering as he should. Now he's going to create um, this city and he's going to name it in, after his son. So now we have in this line of Cain, this sense of wanting to make a name for yourself in defiance of God making a name for themselves. Keep that in mind. Remember that. The fact that they want to make a name for themselves is what marks the line of Cain. And then you go down the seventh generation of Lamech and you have the culminating legacy of Cain. This is what the sin of Cain looks like when it's, um, when it's given time to mature. What, what happens in this family line? We see that Lamech redefines marriage according to his own desires. To this point, we have everyone just understanding that one woman, one man for life, and Lamech's like, I think I'm going to do my own thing. And so he is the first polygamist. He is the first one to take multiple wives. And the name Ada means pretty face, and Zillah means sweet voice. And so he's got his trophy wives. He chooses who he wants. He flaunts against God. He redefines marriage according to his own desires, and he's the first polygamist. He is going to use women for his own purposes. And we have that beginning. You want to know where that began? Lamech is credited with being the beginning of this mistreatment of women, this redefinition of marriage, and this um, kind of self-centered way of using sexuality and marriage to serve oneself. Lamech gets credit for starting that trend. And from these two women, he has three sons who have massive cultural and technological inventions. They are the first ones to figure out quite a few things. Jabal is the first one for agricultural development, the one who dwells in tents and takes care of animals. Now, we've seen that before, but it seems like here that maybe Jabal is the first one to kind of like really spread this thing, really make this an industry. Um, and so he is the father of agricultural advancement. And then Jubal, music and artistic advancement. He is the one that figures out and kind of figures out musical instrumentation and arts and those kinds of things. So he's the one who makes that particular innovation to humanity. And then we have Tubal, who seems like metallurgy is his thing. He's, he, he, he knows how to forge things out of metal. And it's interesting because you go jabble to... Jubal Tubal, that makes sense. But you get this little addition to Tubal's name, and what's the addition to Tubal's name? It's Cain, which I think tells you a little bit of something about what kind of man Tubal is. This is a weapons maker. This is someone who has found a way to make killing more efficient with weaponry, to the sense that he actually has his great-great-great-great-grandfather's name sort of attached to him, Tubal Cain. He has made... He has made weaponry. That's my understanding of what's going on. Now, there might be other metallurgy things that are in there, but I think that attachment of his name goes, this is someone who has figured out a more efficient way to brother kill. And then Nama's kind of a mystery. Um, she's kind of a mystery why she's added in here. Um, there's some weird Jewish legends about her, but we'll, we'll, we'll save that for another day. So you can Google that in your own time. But look at what happens with Lamech in verse 23. 
He has his heart revealed. I want you to notice that as we go through the text, the way that hearts are revealed um, through this whole text. So his heart is revealed through this song or poem. Look at this. Look at verse 23. Now this is just, this is really kind of a stunning thing to think about. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. So he gets his wives together, and this is, this is a poem, this is a song that he writes as a threat. This is a threat. Don't you ever cross me. Don't you ever cross me. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man, actually literally child. I murdered a child for hitting me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. You cross me, and you're going to get wrath like you have never seen in your life. Just totally flaunting the justice of God. Arrogant, angry, dominant, threatening, abusive. Can you imagine what a nightmare for those women? What a nightmare to be married to Lamech. He brags and writes songs about violent retribution on a child. He has a brash attitude about being above the law. What are people going to do? If, I, if they hold me accountable, I'll just, I'll just exact revenge on them. You just have this, you have this sick, violent heart. And we see the heart and life of Lamech today. When you see those who dominate Lamech redefines marriage according to his own desires, flagrantly devalues human life, celebrates the destruction of the young, silences and dominates those who dare oppose him. He twists God's words to justify his own sin, and all in the midst of massive creative technological advance. A lot of good things, a lot of common grace things, a lot of things that are going to be used later are coming out of this family. So there is some common grace, even those who are Wicked can come up with good inventions for humanity, but that's not all there is, right? That's not all there is, and ultimately what defines them is not just their technological advance, but a violent, God-hating heart that comes out in Lamech. Lamech is the father of polygamy, victimization, abuse, domination, terrorism, totalitarianism. He's the first dictator in many ways. And if you remember back to chapter 3, verse 16, God said something to Eve. He says, your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Which was a bit of a prediction that the mistreatment and domination of women by men was going to happen in this kind of world that you've chosen apart from me. And no one embodies that more than Lamech. So this is the line of Cain. Seven generations in, this is the situation of the line of Cain. So there's a need for a Toledo restart. For God's promise to maybe go down a different line. So we back up. And here's what we have. Actually, you can look at chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. There is a bit of hope here. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called him his name Seth. For she said, God appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. 
At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Ah, remember? Cain, make a city. We're going to make our name great. We're going to see that coming again with the Tower of Babel. This idea of creating a great city in our name in defiance against God. But Seth and his sons are marked by what? By the name of God. By calling out on the name of God. Not about making a name for themselves, but about calling out in hope on the glorious name of God. And so, in light of that, we see this reset. Which means, now if we read chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, we see that God kind of puts the car in reverse. We've kind of seen down the line. Now let's kind of work our way back. And God sets things in motion here. These are the generations of Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son, Seth, in his own likeness after his own image and named him Seth. And now you're going to start to see that the promise is going to take a different route than through Cain. And so now we have this contrast between Cain's line and Seth's line. We've already seen what name they're marked by is already shown up. Cain wants to make a name for himself. They're going to make a legacy on the earth and they're going to develop technology and no one's going to cross them. And then you've got the line of Seth who isn't credited with any technological advances at all but calls and trusts in the name of the Lord. From a worldly perspective, not particularly impressive. And yet God notices them. God takes interest here. God's going to work his promise through this line, this quiet little line that just merely trusts in him. Not showy, not dominant, not particularly impressive, but calls on him. And let's see how this line works out. Cain's line is known for making a name for themselves. Seth's line is known for calling on the name of the Lord. And then you see again and again, someone is born, lives a certain amount of time. They give birth to a son. And then they live another number of years. Notice the attentiveness here that God knows the names and the years and the children of those who walk with him. Cain, Cain's line was pretty quick, right? But notice the attentive detail, which tells us something about God. It tells us something about God, that God loves children. He knows their names. He's counting their days. He knows where their line is going. And so there's something to be said here about these two genealogies that God gives special attention to the line of promise that he doesn't give to the line of of Cain. And then you get to verse 21. Like you just have this repeated refrain. They, They live, they have a child, they live a little bit longer, they die. And you just see that refrain over and over and over again. And the final word on each of them is they die, they die, they die. Which you're, you're, that's meant to hit you. That death is reigning in every generation, righteous or unrighteous. The curse of God, the curse of death, ultimately wins. No matter how long they live, it's still eventually death comes for all of them. And then you get this weird kind of hiccup in verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he'd fathered Methuselah. And you would expect a couple more years, well, more than a couple, a couple hundred more years. And then he died, but you get this little, like, and it's meant to kind of throw you off. Enoch walked with God and he fathered Methuselah 300 years uh, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days were 365 years and you would expect and then he died, but you don't. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. And then it just keeps right on going. 
Guess where this is at? This is at generation seven in the line of Seth. So you go seven generations in on the line of Cain, and you get massive technological advancement, great earthly success, and just an absolute disaster of a human being. You go down the line of those who call on the name of the Lord, and you get to the seventh generation, and you get someone who actually defeats death because he walks with God. It's meant to give you a bit of hope that maybe there's a way for death to be defeated. And it's just this subtle little thing. And how does one defeat death? Be part of the lineage of those who call on the name of the Lord and walk with God. And there's a victory over death. Lamech is the kind of guy who celebrates death. Enoch is the one who actually escapes death by walking with God. There's a contrast there at generation 7, this marker, that there are two kinds of humanity in the world. And there are two ways to live. You can live to try to make a name for yourself, or you can live calling on the name of the Lord. And you can be one that tries to justify your own sin, or you can be one who walks with God and lives forever. And we see these two genealogies compared There's a couple different ways to compare. You can compare it like the first one, the name of the Lord, and the name of, so that first generation after Cain and Seth, you have the name comparison, one making a name for themselves, one for the making, calling on the name of the Lord. Then you can go down to generation seven. You can see these two different guys. You can also compare the genealogies in terms of um, looking at the two Enochs. There's an Enoch in each line. One Enoch living temporarily in the city of man. The other Enoch looking living eternally in the presence of God. Two destinies, two ways to live. Living in the city of man or living eternally in the presence of God. Hebrews 11.5 tells us that Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. But now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Because of Enoch's faith, he was taken to God. So the two Enochs can be compared. And then you can also... If you go to the end of chapter 5, you can look at the two speeches of the two Lamechs. So you can look at generation 7, but then you can also look at the names, because there's two names that repeat in each one. And look at the two curse speeches, or two speeches of, of the two Lamechs. One Lamech speaks about how great and glorious he is at the end of chapter, I guess it's chapter 4. But then look at the Lamech who's 10 generations in, verse 28, of chapter 5. Lamech lived 182 days. He fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. So you got two, spe- two Lamechs who give a speech. One flaunting the curse and the other looking for the hope of, rem- of defeat of the curse. And so you, you, there's so many ways that you can kind of compare these two genealogies that's masterfully put together by Moses to communicate a point. I think it's recording actual history and lineage, but it's also there's something really unique in how God is arranging history to show that there are two kinds of humanity in the world. There's two ways to live. There's two, ways, two things you can trust in. You can trust in yourself and worldly things, or you can trust in God and heavenly things. You can call on his name. You can walk with him. 
You can trust in his victory over the curse. Or you can be like the line of Cain, and you can try to make a name for yourself. Justify your own sin and be left out of the presence of God. So there's so many amazing things as you look at these two genealogies. One goes seven generations, the other ten, to tell you that one is more lasting than the other. God cares about names and time and the procreation of humanity. Death reigns over all, but there is the ability to have victory even over death for those who walk with God. So just a quick question before we then go to the total reformat. This is the reset. So going back and the promise is going to go through a different line and we have this contrasting, two kinds of humanity. But just a quick question, what's with the long lives? Um, I guess on one hand, I don't really know. I wasn't there. I can't do the scientific tests. But there are some who say that maybe there's some symbolism in the numbers, some numeric sim- symbolicness. Um, some people have tried to try to resolve it that way, that maybe these are meant to be symbolic numbers to kind of point to something else. I tend to think that it's because it's so clear that he's so many aged, then he has this child, then he's so many years, and then he dies. And then as you walk through the book of Genesis, their lifespans are going to get shorter and shorter and more to what we would expect, that, that Moses is being literal here, that he's, he is explaining, and that somehow in the pre-flood world, Right after the fall, this is just some, some thoughts here, okay? Perhaps they have better bodies. Not a lot of diseases yet. Those humans were made to live forever in the garden. So a mere 900 years is quite a reduction from eternity. So they already have been shrunk way down, and their bodies are maybe in better condition. The environment is perhaps better pre-flood, fewer diseases, more favorable climate. These are just possibilities, that maybe it would make sense that lives were people lived longer. They were designed to live forever, so even this is a reduction. And I think ultimately it just shows the mercy and patience of God, that he would allow sinful human beings so long, but even then they can't escape death. Even then they can't escape death. So there's actually some accounts of Sumerian kings um, uh, that where there's um, some recording of them living like 72,000 years. I don't know that that's accurate, but it's not uncommon to find other literature about people living really long times. Um, and so um, I don't really have a great answer to that other than it seems like Moses is being very intentional and clear to communicate actual facts to us here. And um, it's possible in a pre-flood world, post-Eden world, that the dynamics, human, human beings were maybe just a bit more resilient. And so um, that's some possible explanations. So it does seem strange to us, though, doesn't it? Can you imagine being 900 years old? Like you were born like in like the medieval times? Like it's just... Um, so I don't have any other deeper insight than just that. But that's a road you can go down if you would like to research that more. You can find some good things. A few things just to note here is that we see that God sees the future, right? He knows where the line of Cain is going to go, and he gives the son Seth. So God is standing outside of time, and he's fully aware of where these things are going, and he's already working out promises and plans long before we see the conclusions of them. Before we get to the end of the Cain line, God has already given Seth, and he's already working out a plan before we even know what he's doing. And so just take heart with that, that God is maybe working out a plan that you can't see right now. God also, God sees the heart. 
God knows the little poem that Lamech tells to his wives. God heard that. And God's going to hold them accountable. He also heard the words of promise from the other Lamech. The words of prophecy over his son. So God sees the heart. God knows the actions. Nothing escapes his gaze. While it looks like a lot of evil is going on, God does see and he will make right. We see that God directs families. God directs families. He's paying attention. God knows names. God counts years. And yet in all of this, we see that death really is the consequence for sin. That all of these men died except for Enoch. Just to raise the question in our minds a little bit is, is there life after death? Is there a way over the curse? Yes, and it's for those who walk with God. So let's now look at chapter 6, all right? Now that we've gotten through the hard stuff, let's go to the easy section. This is not an easy section. All right, let's look at verse 6, chapter 6, verse 7, actually. Look at verse 7. We see a total reformat. Here's what God concludes, and we'll go back and look at why. Here's what God concludes in chapter 6, verse 7. So imagine this virus-infested computer. It's just not working at all. It's just getting worse and worse. So you have to wipe the hard drive clean. So I just recently had a little miniature hard drive that had just absolutely everything on it, like 500 gigs worth of stuff. And, um, and it corrupted. And I took it to a guy, and it took him forever to get like 100 gigs off that. Luckily, I got all the church stuff off. But I have a lot of my stuff that's just gone. And so there's this sense of like, you've got to reformat this thing. We could try to save what we can, but this thing needs to be totally wiped clean, restarted. And that's essentially what God is going to conclude to do. The virus, the global pandemic is so deep, so, um, so insidious that here's what he concludes in verse 7. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I just feel the weightiness of that. God created a good world with good intentions for these human beings. And this is the point that their sin has pushed God's own heart towards. Is that now he knows, he's run the equation, he knows sovereignly what's going to happen, he knows what's necessary, and a total reformat is necessary. Let's jump back and see where this comes from. Go back to verse 1. Well, there's two reasons. Let me give you the two reasons. They might pop on the screen. Two reasons why God is going to reformat. He's going to wipe the slate totally clean. Not just a restart of Toledot, but a reset, a reformat of the whole earth. Two reasons, a diabolical transgression. We're going to get into that in just a moment. It's a fun one. And a comprehensive corruption. Okay, a diabolical transgression in verses 1 through 4. A comprehensive corruption in verse 5. Okay, so the two reasons why the flood is what God concludes is the right thing to do. Okay, when man... So let's look at a diabolical transgression here. All right. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, that's a key phrase. That's the key to the passage right there. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit will not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. When the sons of God came to the daughters of men and bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Okay, so this is wild. All right, here we go. The sons of God take the daughters of men and have children with them. 
And this is some sort of transgression that is at least part of the reason why God feels like he needs to cleanse the whole earth. This is a transgression that is so serious that it, this is what God concludes is the right thing to do. Okay? God is provoked into this by these things here. Okay? We've got three main interpretations. On, so we've got a contrast. We've got the sons of God. We've got the daughters of men. So there's clearly a contrast that these two should not be getting together in this way. Okay. Three main interpretations. This was fun. I did a paper on this in college, so this will be fun to kind of bring out some of that. So one is that sons of God is referring to the godly line of Seth. The godly line of Seth, because in the context, we have this contrast between Cain and Seth, and there are two lines. And so what we have is we have the godly line of Seth intermarrying with the evil line of Cain. So that's what we have is we have this kind of cross-religion marriage, perhaps, something like that, okay? We see that later in the scriptures that gets a lot of other people in trouble. That gets the Israelite leaders in trouble quite a bit. So that's one. Sons of God meaning godly, those of the godly line, taking wives of the ungodly line of Cain um, because they find them attractive, okay? So that's, uh, that's interpretation number one. Interpretation number two is that these are men of power. So Elohim, the word for God here, sons of God, God is the word Elohim, can mean powerful ones. It's not used just exclusively of God, but it can be used of powerful ones. So this idea of men of power, kings, are, uh, are acquiring harems of these vulnerable women. You can almost think kind of, of like Lamech, right? Lamech, this man of power, is going to gather all these women and he's just going to enjoy them on his own whatever. So men of power exploiting weaker women. So this idea of sons of God being men of power and the contrast is daughters of women who are vulnerable being brought into this. Okay, now here's the third interpretation. This one sounds kind of sci-fi. Sons of God is angelic beings who then procreate with human women. Okay? So, probably demonic angels procreating with human women. Now, here is the rationale behind that. Sons of God is used a few times in the scriptures to refer to angels. If particularly in Job 1 and 2, it talks about kind of God calling the angels, almost like a roll call or something. It says, the sons of God come. also talks in the Psalms of when God creates the earth, the sons of God rejoice, referring to the angels. So this is, it's the, the, the idea here is that the potential is, is that there are some spiritual beings who take on human form, which we see, we're going to see that later in Genesis, that angels can take on a human form. We also see in the time of Jesus that humans can, or, uh, um, humans can be t- possessed by spiritual beings, right? So this idea of, a, of these demonic angels procreating with human women and creating sort of this corrupted offspring, which would then make the prophecy about the coming seed of the woman. If you've corrupted the humanity in sort of this kind of bi-species way, the promise can't come. So there is, it is while it sounds sci-fi, it does have some interesting connections to it. It also maybe would explain why a worldwide flood is necessary. Like you're like, that's a pretty drastic thing for just simply polygamy or... Uh, I mean, we already have seen some of this, but maybe if there's some sort of like spiritual dynamic going on here, 
then maybe that explains why the flood is really, really necessary. Like you have to preserve the human race because you've got this weird demonic strategy to corrupt humanity and bring them into this eternal way so that God is unable to bring about his promise. This also explains two passages in the Peters, First and Second Peter. First Peter 3 says, Christ also suffered once for sins. First Peter 3, 18 through 20. So if you want to look at this yourself, you can. First Peter 3, 18 through 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put together in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, the spirits in prison. It's a special quarantined group of spirits that Jesus at his death goes and proclaims victory over. Now listen to how it describes it. Because they did not, they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So 1 Peter 3 seems to talk about a particular group of angels that are in a particular sort of quarantined state because of some transgressions they committed in the days of Noah. Just saying, maybe. Second Peter, verse, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Peter says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. So there he connects about a special class of angels that are in quarantine, that are being held for special judgment, connected to the time of Noah. Potentially. Potentially. Most early Jewish scholars take this demon view. A lot of people down through history. So I'm tipping my hand a little bit. I think this is potentially the best option. Now, I read commentators who are across the board in all three of these different views. And in some ways, it doesn't really change where we sit today. But this idea, the sons of God and daughters of men, is the diabolical transgression around sexuality and marriage, some sort of transgression being committed, whatever it is, that provokes God for the need to condemn the world. So a question, who are the Nephilim? The Nephilim are giants. We see that they are both before and after. Um, the spies in Numbers talk about they seeing the Nephilim. So the Nephilim, I don't think, are the offspring of this group. Those mighty men of renown are at the end of verse 4. Okay? All right. So one is that we have a diabolical transgression. Reason number one for the flood, that God is going to do a total reformat. Whatever it is, whatever those three interpretations it is, God is convinced that this is the right thing to do. He is provoked to do this. God is not arbitrary. God is not trigger happy. He says, I'm going to give them 120 years. I think that could either refer to how long their lifespans will be after the flood, or it could be, I'm going to give them 120 years before I send the flood. And I think it's that one. I think it's 120 years. I'm going to let this thing continue. And Noah's going to build this big boat. And, you know, People are not that spread out yet, so people are going to hear this preacher of righteousness. They're going to hear about the coming judgment, and they're going to have 120 years. Now just think of how potentially awful this sin is, and how dramatic the judgment of God is, and yet God is still going to give, I'm going to give you over a century to repent. So God is being very patient here. While this is a severe judgment, there's also incredible patience and kindness of God, and he's provoked to do this. 
He is right to do this. And then we see in, verses, in chapter 6, verse 5, a comprehensive human corruption. Look at this, verse 5. So not only do we have this diabolical transgression, but we also have this assessment of humanity. Look at this, verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth. If God thinks something's great, it is great indeed. Great meaning not positive. Great meaning just it's heaped up. It's huge. The wickedness of man is just epically huge on the earth. And listen to this assessment. This is God's assessment. God saw that the wickedness of man is great on the earth and that every, look at the sevenfold description, every, no exception, intention, not accidental, intentional, thought, not just their acts, their thoughts, of the heart from their internal core, from the core of who they are, was only, never anything else, evil, anti-good, anti-true, anti-beautiful, only evil, continually, unceasing and relentless. Look at that assessment. This is the assessment of humanity by God. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil, continually, just pure wickedness all the way down, without an exception, without a single thought in a Godward direction. This is how deep the virus is. A reformat is needed. We have, God must wipe this thing out. It's totally corrupted. Just think of the, how grievous that sevenfold description is. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Just absolute And look at verse 6. Maybe one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Just let that sit on you for a second. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And we have this contrast between the heart of man and the heart of God, right? God is deeply heard and grieved and resolved to cleanse, right? Deeply grieved at what he sees. And then we see humanity not given a rip about God. Look at the dispositions of their hearts. God's heart is inclined towards humanity. And man's heart is not in one bit inclined towards God. To their own destruction. But there is one, there is one whom God will use. If you go back to chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, we've already been hinted at this. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah. And he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed this one shall bring relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. This one will be a new Adam in a new world. And then all the days of Lamech were 777 years and he died. And after Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Noah was a bit of a late bloomer. Everyone else is having children in their hundreds. Noah... It's not until he's 500, and then he gets a pretty big assignment. And look at chapter 6, verse 8. Just think, let me just read 1 through 7 for you, and just feel the heaviness 
of God's disapproval, God's anger, God's judgment. Think of all of the evil being done in every single, gen- every single direction by every human being. And just think about how sweet verse 8 then sounds. When man began multiplying on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of man saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any that they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. The Bible should probably stop right there and there'd be no one to read it. Verse 8 is a game changer. Listen to this. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Did he deserve it? Didn't deserve it. It was gifted. The word could be translated grace. The Lord bestowed grace on Noah. This is not to say that Noah was necessarily all that much better. We don't have a lot. We see that he's a pretty righteous man. He obeys God. So he isn't quite like the rest of them. But there's nothing in here that speaks of Noah being awesome, but of God being gracious and merciful. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One in the whole world, one who will rescue humanity. Just one. All of us, when we get to heaven... Oh, Noah, a huge high five. One faithful person. And we're sitting here. This is amazing. This is one of the most significant direction-changing verses in the whole Bible. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we're going to unpack that next week. But here are just a few things as we close out. So total restart, total do restart. A total reformat, going to cleanse the earth, start over. God's literally pulling one file folder off the computer and then he's going to wipe the whole thing, put the file back in and reset, restart, reformat the whole thing. And just a few things. You, see, you saw Cain's heart, didn't you? In defying God and building a city for, his, for himself. You see Lamech's heart of violence and abuse. Defiance against God. And then you saw Seth's heart. One who calls on the name of the Lord. And you see Enoch's heart. A heart that walks with God. And you see the other Lamech's heart. One who's trusting in the promise of God. And sees something in this little Noah. This little Noah that maybe God's going to use him. Pronounces this prophecy over him. You see humanity's heart. Only evil continually. From the heart. Every thought. Every intention. Always evil. And then you see God's heart, who's so grieved at what humanity has done to themselves. How they've twisted his glory. How they've ruined his world. How they've offended him. And yes, he's angry, but he's also grieved. Because his heart is inclined towards humanity. He, he means to do them good. And they have provoked him to the point that he must bring his wrath. 
And we see that God is in control over everything in the world. In this passage, we see a God who knows and sees everything. He can see the intentions of our hearts. And he evaluates them. We see a God who's in, whose heart is inclined towards mankind. He's not trigger happy. He's so patient with them. Even when he sees this wretchedness, he's like, I'm still going to give them another century just because I want them to repent. I'm going to give 120 more years of opportunities. We see that man's heart is naturally inclined away from God. And apart from God's intervention, we just totally crater ourselves, right? We might have great achievements like Lamech's sons on this earth, but ultimately we destroy ourselves. And what is needed is a changed heart disposition towards God. That's the only hope. A heart that calls on his name, a heart that walks with him, a heart that receives his grace. Did you see those three highlights in the text? Call on his name, walk with him, receive his grace, and there's unlimited mercy for those that do that. As the Bible story moves on, we see that Jesus himself is the hero of this story. That Jesus is the only name we can call on and receive the promise. Jesus is the one we follow and walk with who will lead us through death and to victory over death. We see that Jesus is the favored one who will save the world from judgment, just like Noah. We see in this some, some framework that Jesus himself is going to fulfill. The restart and the reformat are just an appetizer. These horrible things here are just a foreshadowing of the judgment that is still to come. God is going to judge the world and rid it of sin. He is going to set the world entirely new and right. And he's already in this passage shown us how we can escape judgment and death. How we can escape the judgment that's coming and be part of the new heavens and the new earth. And that is by trusting in the name of Jesus, walking with him, receiving his grace. It's already here in this book. And so you have a decision before you. Are you of the line of Cain, making a name for yourself? Or are you like those that we find in the line of Seth, calling, walking, and receiving the grace of God? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this text, a really tricky one, with a lot of confusing elements and things that don't make sense to us. But God, we pray that we would not miss the point that you are a God who is so glorious and in charge of all of history and so incredibly patient with sinners. And yet, that patience will end at some point and judgment will come. And I pray, God, that you would help us not to delay in our calling on you, our walking with you, our receiving of your grace. God, I pray that because of what Jesus Christ has done, his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, we would call on him, we would walk with him, we would receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would be saved by faith. God, thank you for this story. Sink it deep into our hearts. Give us good conversation about it after this. And may we delight in the God who is both patient and just and extends grace to sinners. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.